Thank you. Thank you so much, Garth and Eunice. They said it better than well, didn't they? What you heard them say was, this next week, we're going to celebrate Christmas. And at Christmas, we teach about Jesus, we love Jesus, we show Jesus. And what you heard them say at the end is, we still need people to be Jesus. And so we need people to step in, to be sitting at a table, to be at the front door, to be in the kitchen, to be greeting security, whatever is needed. At Christmas time, sometimes the conversation is who's going to dress up and act like Santa, right? My mom had this crazy, cheap, homemade Santa Claus outfit. My dad didn't dress up as Santa, but my mom would come home from working at the hospital on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day and... And occasionally she would show up in a Santa Claus outfit. She was totally acting. I never once thought it was Santa. <laughs> never once. But do you know what we're not asking you to act this Christmas? To just act like Jesus. We're not, acting you to, we're not asking you to play a part. We're ask, actually asking you to be Jesus. You are actually his hands and feet. He actually loves this world that he came at Christmas time. And so in your workplaces, your schools, your neighborhoods, and yes, even at church in these special outreaches this next week, to be Jesus the way those people were Jesus yesterday at the Christmas soup in Bannock. So you can go to the connections table after church if you haven't signed up yet and do that. You can go to your church email. We need you to try to sign up today, if you would, so that tomorrow with the final preparations and, and so that when that amazingly thorough email goes out on Monday to all the workers, that you actually take the five minutes to read it so that you show up and don't go, I don't know what to do. Read it once and they'll tell you the rest when you, when you get there. And uh, we would love to have you involved. And if you would at all consider yourselves like Garth and Eunice and you've been a part of these family churches this fall and you consider yourselves in an age group like Garth and Eunice, that 35 to 39 age, right? Can I just say thank you very much to that particular age group? The young adults, we love you and we want to thank and honor you for all you do and, and seniors and young families. But if you're in that kind of empty nest and you could be doing anything with your life and your income and your time and your energy and you're choosing to put yourself in difficult positions like Garth and Eunice said, can I just say that you're rock stars? That you're, yeah. And that we're very grateful to have people with that level of wisdom and experience as you to step into those nights. So thank you very much. Please um, sign up to be a part this week. We are indeed moving into our Advent series. We're carrying on with the Make Room theme. This Sunday I'm preaching on Make Room for Hope. Next Sunday you get to hear... Leah speak after a year hiatus from preaching. She's going to be back. Yeah, you're going to applaud for her. I know that. She's preaching on make room for peace. But her tagline, can I say it? No room in the womb. Ooh, what's that going to be like that? Yeah. She's been jumping up and down about that one for the last three weeks. 
And then on the 17th, the title is Make Room for Joy. And uh, Pastor Spencer, who came on staff this, this fall, that's going to be his first message. So he's going to preach. And then I'll be speaking on Christmas Eve on Make Room for Love. But let's start off with this uh, quick video. Our projector's hanging on by a thread today, if you can tell. God, you threw the whole world a curveball when you showed us. Maybe we won't. We're not for sure. Okay. It's a great video. <laughs> I will try to send you the link. Which reminds me, if you haven't signed up for the, with the Connect card yet to get the weekly emails and you've been around for more than two or three weeks, we really encourage you to get the Connect card at the Connections table or look for the QR codes. The, our weekly email blast contains everything you need to know about what's going on for the next week, two or three. And so we would really love for you to get that to be able to catch all that's going on. We're talking about, talking about hope. And we know, um, today, I'm going to try to talk in a way that freshens the Advent idea for you long-time, long-term followers of Jesus, which I believe is most of you in this room. And if you're not long-term yet, that's great, and I think it still applies. When we talk about Jesus coming at Christmas, we often talk about him coming to be the savior of the world, which is true, and we're going to celebrate communion. But we don't want to just talk about Advent and Jesus is coming this, this Advent season in a way that just is going to apply him to the world outside these walls. Today I'm going to work hard to talk about making room for hope in your life with Jesus for you in this room when you struggle with hopelessness. When our hope seems dead, Christmas reminds us that Jesus came to bring hope to life. And I think part of the problem with the Christian church in the Western society, and particularly Canada and the United States, is that we have churches full of people who claim to be saved and know that they're going and have hope for eternity, but they don't have hope for today. Because the things of this world have got to them, gotten to us. They drag our hope. And instead of thriving in a world that's broken with the love of Jesus, we are trying to survive and just make it through till we get to eternity and hope to be with Jesus. How does the birth of Jesus actually bring hope to life for his followers? And so today we're going to look at a few areas that I think can be hit with hopelessness in our lives, even though we love Jesus, and then look at intentionally turning to Jesus when, and we'll end this message with a prayer and a worship song to focus on Jesus and then come back at the end to actually take communion and close with a few announcements. The, the end of the Old Testament in your book, in your books, in your Bibles, <laughs> is Malachi. 
And uh, Malachi was written around 400 years before Christ. Some would say that it wasn't the last book written, that the book of Chronicles was written after Malachi, and that the Old Testament could actually end with Chronicles, and it's actually about 400 years before Christ. I'm not here to debate that or worry about that as long as we're, we're containing them in the scripture that we read. But the important thing is to recognize that there's kind of this 400-year gap from any written scripture that we hold on to as the word of God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The end of Malachi uh, is chapter 4, and it says this. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. You will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord God Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And so throughout the Old Testament, there's all sorts of prophecies, all sorts of words, all sorts of scripture and situations that are supposed to be turning the people's eyes towards the idea of a Messiah, the idea of salvation, the idea that God is not with them and he is for them, he is not against them, but he will bring deliverance. And then in in Luke chapter 1, verses 11 to 17, it says this. And these are scriptures not about Jesus. They're talking about the situation where John the Baptist is conceived and that John the Baptist is coming to prepare the way for Jesus. It says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him, being Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer is being heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah." This is referring to John the Baptist. He would be in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and, to the, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You'll hear some of that language out of Malachi that's foreshadowing and prophesying about John the Baptist coming in preparation for Jesus. So the people have been living in, in this silence for 400 years, and it's not that God wasn't working, it wasn't that God had forgotten, but he wasn't speaking in this normal type of way that there'd been a season through, through prophets and, and that there would be scripture. God was working in the, in the nation. There was regime changes from when Malachi or Chronicles was written to the New Testament where we see it in Matthew, Matthew Mark, Luke, and John. Rome has come into power, and now they're oppressing Israel. And the people have this prophetic word and this, prov- this promise that the Messiah is going to come and to deliver them, that someone's going to save Israel. Their history was full of, of these prophecies that was supposed to be building their forward view, their looking ahead, their prophetic vision that an eventual Savior would come to the world. Prophecies like this in Isaiah 9. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so... They were looking, but after 400 years, if it was you and I, we might wonder, when is this actually going to happen? It feels a little reminiscent of the Israelites in Egypt and the 400 years and, and the type of life they were having to live and the oppression they were under. It would seem when you look in the New Testament and you look in the, even the historical documents about what that season was like, that it would have been cruel and unusual punishment to live under the occupation and the authority of, of the Romans at that time. But they were supposed to be looking and watching for and living with prepared hearts to be looking for Jesus. But it, it must have been difficult because even John the Baptist, who had this spoken about him before he was born, and then he went out and began to preach and to baptize and to bring people. He even knew Jesus. He was Jesus' cousin. In Matthew chapter 11, the, John the Baptist sends his own guys, his own posse, his own disciples, to Jesus and says, Are you the one, or should we wait for another? Are you the one, or should we wait for another? And so I'm trying to get in you a little bit of tension now that you know the, how the story ends and that Jesus does show up and he does go to the cross and he does rise again. What would it be like to actually be living in this state of, I don't know what's happening. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. I don't know if I'm thinking right, living right, working right, doing right. His disciples couldn't get it quite right. When are you going to change our environment and start rocking it as ruler of Israel, kick the Romans out so that we could actually live in the divine kingdom here on earth? Jesus was banging his head against the proverbial wall as he was trying to convey to them that actually mine is a spiritual kingdom. The stuff of this world is going to pass away. Watch for it. Learn the signs. Live as you're supposed to live for me. But don't think I'm coming to play in this mess. I've got different plans for you and for eternity. And at the scripture says it was the fullness of time. It was the perfect time when God sent his son to come and to bring hope to the world. And there's a good chance that if you're in this room, you have put your faith in Jesus. And if you are in this room and haven't put your faith in Jesus, I would like to encourage you that there is no better day, moment, or minute than right now than to say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. I need you to forgive me. I choose to put my faith and trust in you. That you would find your hope for this life and the next in Jesus Christ. And when you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and you've learned to live a life of faith, it's one of the most frustrating things when you come to that moment in time and you recognize that the God that you love and serve is not the God of your own imagination and the way you would like him to operate. And you begin to come face to face with the reality that what you think and know about God in your beginning stages of faith and your middle stages of faith, is that God is 
fully unknowable in the whole sense. And his plans and his ways are higher than your ways. And so you will come up to the proverbial wall of frustration and wondering if there's hope in a hopeless world and your hopeless situations. Wondering if you've got it right. And so we can look back in those days and those situations and point our finger at them. But we actually should be doing that right beside a mirror so that we're pointing the finger at us. So God, God sent Jesus. He came to do the works so that we could put our faith and hope from in him. And once you put your faith and hope in him and you recognize that there's suffering, pain, loss, and mourning, anger, and the residue of the consequences of sin and those fresh temptations that come at you, you wonder, is there a way forward that is anything more than just hopefully ending up in heaven someday? Because I sure can't figure this stuff out. So what do we do? Do we actually believe that Jesus came to give hope just for the future and we've got to make it through till we get there? Or did Jesus come to give hope for eternity and hope for today? And my desire is that if you face any degree of hopelessness in your life today, that you would get a fresh breath of the Holy Spirit's air on you to crack open that window or door so that he can start to rush in and displace the hopelessness so that you can live in the hope that he has for you. So I'm going to quickly look at three areas that you will knowingly or unknowingly possibly be affected by. It's, I think they're risky areas. They're places where Christians are at greatest risk in getting hopelessness to settle in. And like so many things, like the, the frog in the pot of water, you start off in cool water, the frog just sits there, and you crank up the heat, and the frog cooks to death because it never knows to jump out. These things can just kind of happen at a low level, and the heat starts to increase, and we just begin to think that it's normal. And so I want to have you hear that these three, three things that I'm mentioning to you today, that they are not the normal state for the follower of Jesus to have to live their life in. Okay? One, two, three, okay. All right. So the first one is cynicism. Cynicism. It's where you start to believe that no one can be trusted in your life, that no one has any good motives, that there's no good motives behind anything. You begin to show contempt for the world, for your family situations, work situations, friend situations, school situations, because you're getting bitter and twisted, resentful and pessimistic, and hopelessness begins to set in because you have began to agree with the statement that you've made that there's no hope that anything will change. I would like you to know and to take to heart that cynicism is not a fruit of the Spirit. When you recognize that you are more in a cynicism type of mind frame, you won't be operating with love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I missed one there. Forgive me. That cynicism sounds like criticism, judgment, hard to impress, critical. And so it's one thing to have an opinion and it's one thing to say something, but if 90% of your life flows in that vein, rather than as a Christian that's flowing down the, the vein of the fruit of the Spirit, you can consider yourself that you may have been tainted and living in the toxic zone of cynicism. 
And churches get bad raps because Christians are perceived as having bad attitudes when they live a cynical lifestyle outside of their walls after they praise Jesus. And I happen to agree with that opinion of the world. That if we are living cynical lives as Christians in the world, what on earth do we have to offer besides nothing? You can gain a cynical spirit. Just a couple things that will gain a cynical spirit is the hypocrisy of others. Never mind your own hypocrisy. Just if you look at others and people are not acting the way they say that you should. When they say one thing and do another. I, when you grow up in this world and you see leaders saying one thing and doing another during COVID and coming out of COVID, we all know that world leader that was part saying you should not be getting together and gathering and they themselves were having maskless, alcohol-filled parties. The world gets cynical. Well, if they can do it, why can't I? And all of a sudden there's no rules because everybody's just living for themselves. My life following Jesus has been full of a series of major Christian figures having moral falls. It started when I was about 10 years old watching the Sunday morning TV evangelist as he confessed his sexual sin and affair on international television. And then there was just another one this past month that you may or may not have heard of. Of a massive global movement where there's these accusations. I hope they find that the accusations are not true, but it would seem like it's going in that direction based on all the reports and testimony. I'm challenged by my own thoughts, my own temptations, my own actions, my own hypocrisy that I can stand up here on Sunday to tell you to go out and love the world and when I get cut off or get bad customer service, I would rather flip the bird than put my hands together and pray. Yeah, sorry. Sorry that you know that about your pastor now. So, the hypocrisy of others can feed your cynicism. The expectations is another area. The big picture about the world. What is your expectation of the systems of this world? The, the economy, the financial system, the political systems, the social systems. The brokenness of this world is intended to drive the follower of Jesus closer to Jesus and to encourage people to get to Jesus. See the brokenness of the world? But too often the brokenness of the world is attracting Christians to say, look at how broken this world is. And we join the, the, the display of anger and frustration rather than helping to bring Jesus into the middle of it or bring people to Jesus in the middle of it. And then there's the expectation about yourself, the people who have let you down, the fact that you've let yourself down. No one promised you to go through this life without pain, loss, and remorse or, or mourning but we all secretly hope for it, and then we're totally surprised when something bad happens. And it knocks us off our rocker. And I say that with all due and respect, because a lot of you in this room have had far graver, horrible things happen in your life and in your family than I've ever had to experience. I am most cynical when I have unconfessed sin in my life, when I am nurturing hurt and offense that has not been dealt with, or when I'm feeling fear and anxiety. That I don't know what I'm going to do next. And so misery loves company. So let me share some of my pain with you. And I hope you feel this. Sorry, Leah. That's not all of you. I mean her. 
We need to recognize if we are getting a cynical spirit. Because cynicism steals hope and then hope dies. Fighting cynicism is something that Jesus had to deal with amongst the religious leaders, amongst his disciples. And hope is the opposite of cynicism. And so if you make room for hope at Christmas, it means you're going to deal with your cynicism, repent of it, and invite Jesus into it to deal with it. The second area that steals hopelessness for the Christian is addictions. It's something that can steal your hope. And it steals hope because so many lies come with addiction. That you're not spiritual enough. You're not even sure you're saved at those moments when you are participating in that addiction or that sin. And you lack assurance of salvation. And you live in a cycle of shame and guilt and remorse. And you love those moments and those seasons that feel like victory. And you finally won with Jesus. And then all of a sudden somehow it snuck up and bit you in the butt. And you participated in it again. And you just feel so defeated. Dr. Kadischuk, one of my retired professors from Horizon College and a friend of this church, in a conversation about a decade ago, told me how he had grown in compassion for those caught in addiction. And he said things I had never heard before. How our human body was created by God to enjoy relationship, a sin-free pathway between us and him. But now this world is full of people trying to take on the weight and the brokenness of sin and this world and try to live and get by and thrive, not just survive. It was becoming more and more evident to him that he recognized that the struggles and pain of what people had to endure going through death, disappointment, hurt, that in order for people to survive in the most cases, they're just trying to manage their pain or numb out so that they can get by. And they've turned to some certain things in, a re in relief that in the end have caught them or snared them. And he said it in such a pure and beautiful way that my heart was gripped. You see, I come from a Pentecostal background, and I'm thankful for that, and it's one that holy living was emphasized in. But where we maybe got it wrong sometime is that I too quickly associated my sin of the week with a backslidden heart. And that somehow, when I sinned and I failed, that that meant I didn't love Jesus anymore and that I was going straight to hell. And people who live in church and live a normal Christian life that experiences the temptations and the fallings of our still our sinful state, we live not confident lives because we believe that our relationship with God is at risk every time we sin. And I'm here to tell you, if that's news to you today, that that's just not true. The fact is, you can't deal with your addictions and your sin well enough to go to heaven because that's why Jesus had to come. We needed Jesus to forgive us and deal with our sin issue. That's the only way our sin issue can get dealt with. And so then we transfer it to, yeah, but addictions is different. I want to say that addictions isn't different. It's got, it can have horrible consequences. It can cause so much guilt and shame that we want to see people in addictions get set free. But I want you to know that if you are in addictions and you've called on the name of the Lord to save you, your salvation isn't at risk, it's a discipleship opportunity. 
that you are saved by faith when you put your faith in Jesus, and now the rest of your life, whether it's just normal sin or whether it's a, a sin that's a, an addiction, that is the discipleship issue that Jesus wants to walk you through so that you can experience the victory that comes with Jesus. Now, we would all love the magic prayer pill that we just get the pastor to pray for us and the addiction is healed and we don't have to change our lifestyles or our attitudes or the way that we think or the way that we live. The addiction is gone. Now we can just keep living the same way without having to change anything. And quite often the discipleship thing is about live differently so that you can live differently. And that there's actually patterns that Jesus wants to, to change and to break off. There's things you learned growing up in your family of origin that he wants to deal with so that you can get free and truly be free and live victoriously. You can be ad addicted to angry outbursts. You can be addicted to swearing. You can be addicted to alcohol. You can be addicted to pornography. You can be addicted to gossip. And as a Christian, if you tie up your salvation with your level of success in fighting your addiction, it steals hope. And hope dies. And some of you have struggled with addictions and certain addictions for a long time, and I can get a glimpse of that based on journeys in my own life in how frustrating, hard, and discouraging that is. But my desire is today that you will make room for hope and that you will understand that your addictions are an opportunity to get closer to Jesus, not that he stays farther away from you until you get it straight. Christmas was Jesus coming to earth to get close to mankind, and your addictions don't scare him away. He came anyway. And that's the hope of Christmas. And then the last one I want to talk about, I'm preaching so good, I'm preaching long. Let's go. Until 1110, they say. Relationships. Relationships are a place where Christians can get super frustrated. Some people who are single wish they were married. Others who were married wish they were single. <laughs> parents with children, children with parents, siblings, friends, work colleagues, colleagues, employers, and employees. We are intended to live this life in relationship. And we're created for community. So when relationships struggle, and they struggle in the life of the believer as part of living in this broken world, and we're only responsible for ourselves, and we can't force other people to do what they need to do, we get thinking that there's no hope for anything to change because that person is never changing. We need to keep surrendering the people in our life to Jesus and praying for them and ask that Jesus would keep our hearts soft. And there are difficult decisions you will have to make about your family and your children and your parents and your bosses and your employees. It doesn't take away the fact that there will still be difficult decisions and ones that people don't agree with. But they can be motivated by love. They can be directed by Holy Spirit. A difficult decision doesn't mean you check Jesus at the door and just do what you think you have to do for business or for survival. He wants to step into it with you. But here's the one that I want to talk about for a second. is for those of you, those of us who have children, loved ones, close family, extended family, friends, neighbors, who you've prayed for for years and haven't made a decision for Jesus yet. You see the trajectory of the life or the, the consequences of the choices. And they might even be living a good life, but they're living a good life without Jesus. And your heart is broken and you wonder if things will ever change. 
I want to encourage you to make hope for Je- make make room for hope by letting Jesus feed your fuel and feed your fire, not have to struggle it out on your own. Stay diligent, stay perseverant, and stay hopeful that Jesus is on the move because there are things going on behind the scene that you never, ever can expect. There's somebody in this church that in the last year or so came to me and talked to me about a distant relative I have who I don't believe is serving the Lord. And he came to recognize that my last name and their last name was the same. And he said that God had put him in a place to be witnessing and talking to him. It's quiet and I understand what's going on here. We're thinking and listening. But did you catch that? Somebody that I had never met was talking to somebody that I barely knew, even though we were related, and God was connecting dots that I didn't even know there was a dot in place. You don't know how God is moving except this. He is pursuing and chasing after the ones that you love, and so don't give up. Because you don't know how they are going to be reached. Your goal is to pray and leave the consequences to God. And if there's a way to act, love, think, speak that goes with the tone of what God wants to have going on, you step into that with faithfulness. So what do you do if you're hopeless? What do you do to make room for hope? A quick acronym of hope. H. Help. Call for help from Jesus. If you are on struggling with hopelessness, remember Jesus came to earth to get to you and those around you. And so call out for help. Blatant, unashamedly. You don't even have to make it sound nice and it doesn't have to be long. Help me, Jesus, in this situation. Let us not forget the basics of our faith is that we can't do anything without him. Open for O. Open. Be open to Jesus. Surrender again. Repent again. My wife and I pray this prayer we learned from John Eldridge in the last two years. I give everyone and everything to you, Jesus. I will just surrender everything of my life. I'll surrender my finances. I'll surrender my young adult children's decisions to you. I'll surrender my church to you. I'll surrender my relationship with my wife to you. I give you myself. Everything and any and everyone comes underneath the blood of Jesus because I choose to surrender my life to Jesus and give him permission to work in any and all of those situations that I have any influence or authority over. Surrender, repent, turn it over to Jesus. P for plan, plan with Jesus. Work on your discipleship. If you're caught in an addiction, What is the plan? Who are you going to get counseling from? Books to read. Schedule of your day. When's your weak point? Don't just pray and give up. Partner with God and let him direct your paths. Your relationship with your family, with those who aren't serving Jesus, what's the plan? Ask Jesus what he wants you to do. Is it just pray right now? Is there some kind of act you can do? Cynicism. What's the plan? I got an idea. I'm not going to doom scroll for 20 hours a day. That should help. There are some changes that need to be made in order to make room. you got to plan to get rid of some clutter in your life to make room for more of Jesus' hope. And here's the interesting thing. The one who wants to move in is the one who will help the stuff move out. You don't have to clean up your act in order for Jesus to be able to get in. He's actually wanting to help cleanse out the junk. If you repent and you surrender everything and everyone to him... All of a sudden, he's coming along and helping in that journey. That's his 
desire for you. And then E, enjoy. Help from Jesus, open to Jesus, plan with Jesus, and enjoyment with Jesus. Enjoy Jesus. Know that if he's got a different plan for you, it's because his different plan is what's best for you. You have to live differently to live differently. And one of the ways you can live differently is simply enjoy Jesus more. Don't, don't view him as an ogre that you need to uh, try to appease to get the blessings in your life. Recognize that he wants to be your Lord, Savior, and friend. Don't try harder. Enjoy Jesus more is what we say around here. More of God, more security, more of your value and finding validity in Jesus alone. Isaiah 59.1 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. If you are struggling with your hope, lost in hopelessness, I want you to know that as you proceed into the Advent season and think about Jesus this Christmas, I want you to know that Jesus is the answer to your hope issue. That that is why he came. Make room for that. As the band comes and we sing and focus on Jesus, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Not just the band, everybody. Go ahead. Sorry if that wasn't clear. And we're going to pray a prayer. And it can be, I talked about three areas of hopelessness today. But if there's an area I didn't mention, this can be that area too. But I'm going to invite you, if this is resonating with your heart, that you would stand with your, heart, your, your hands open and you would place the cynicism or the addiction or the relationship concerns, or all of them, or whichever ones suit and fit, and that you would be willing to give everyone and everything to Jesus so that you could make room for his hope to fill your life. So if these words resonate with your heart, would you pray them after me? Jesus, thank you for coming to bring hope. Today, I bring you my area of hopelessness. I confess my loss and my hurt, my anger, my frustration, my addiction and my pride, and any sin in connection with this. I surrender my life to you, and I give you everyone and everything in it. I invite you, Jesus, to cleanse my heart, mind, and soul. I invite you to flood me with hope. And I ask you for a direction and plan in how to live out my life. Fill me with hope. Help me live in hope. Pursue me as I pursue you. In Jesus' name.